leader finds a way to put their arms around everybody and uplift everybody. They're not one to be individually focused and push, push the rest of the team down. And so some of those lessons were, were pretty important the more I look back. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Payton with the EOS Leader Podcast. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Christian Hebert, the managing partner of Hebert Grain Ventures, or HGV, a progressive 22,000-acre farming operation in Saskatchewan that prides itself on doing things right by the land. Interestingly, Christian began his career as a CPA, but quickly realized his true calling. After returning to the family's 1,500-acre farm, Christian devoted himself to learning and growth, ultimately receiving a prestigious graduate degree from Texas A&M's executive program for agricultural producers. After growing the farming operation to 22,000 acres and founding or leading a number of businesses dedicated to helping farmers optimize their land and their profits, Christian is widely recognized as one of the best and most progressive young leaders in agriculture. Christian, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on. So I gave you my version of your background. How do you introduce yourself when you meet somebody new? Oh, lots of times I just say, hey, I'm just a farmer. <laughs> you know, I think it has I think it has connotations in today's world of, you know, some people take that as a real you know, positive and that you have a lot of different strengths. And some people kind of give you the, a bit of a one-eyed look wondering that uh, all you do is farm. So it, it usually leads into some pretty good conversations. <laughs> Either combative or, uh, or fun. Uh, one of the two. Why don't you walk us back through your history as an entrepreneur from the various earliest, very earliest days of you thinking about your future? Why don't you tell your own story? You bet. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was in high school, I always rented land from dad and dealt with landlords and stuff like that. And I mean, I was always big into sports and I think, I think sports really actually does kind of bring out the entrepreneur in you. And if you're, you know, part of leadership and how you work with other people and having goals in mind. So hockey, I think led a lot to my entrepreneurial journey as well on, you know, on the school or education side that, that people follow. I, I went to U of S in Saskatchewan here and I was going to be a doctor because my, I had good marks and teachers kind of led me down that path and did one year, came home and said, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I hate this. Yeah. So I told my dad, I was, I was going to take agriculture, be a farmer. Dad goes, you know what? You're good at math. You should take business and see if you like it. Cause the business side is what's really growing. And I can, I can teach you how to farm the agronomy side, something we can hire and teach. So that led me into taking an accounting and a finance degree. And I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the classes, enjoyed everything about it and came home and the farm was pretty small to sustain us both. So worked with a large accounting firm in Canada and focused, you know, as much as I could in agriculture, probably 90% of my time, right from, you know, succession engagements to corporate agriculture, to, to small farms, to everything you could in agriculture. And that, that really led me down the path of making me realize how much I love the industry and, and I wanted to run my own business. Hmm. Great story. Describe the relationship you had with your father during this period of your life. Yeah. So, I mean, dad and I have always been pretty close, like as business partners. And he was always my hockey coach. We were, we were really close that way. I mean, he comes from the generation that I wouldn't say that uh, 
our discussions around feelings have always been that strong, <laughs> but uh, I couldn't have asked for a better business partner. I mean, the way we have things set up, it's a, it's basically a corporate partnership and his company, him and my mom are, and my wife and I, everything we do is still in, in a corporate partnership. So obviously, you know, I'm more or less in control now, but still every business we're part of, he's part of with me. So I would kind of say he was, he's one of my three or four, you know, mentors that I can remember at a pretty young age that, that really drove probably what I would call my core values and how they show up in our companies. He, uh, he was the number one driver behind one. And, you know, as I was thinking about the podcast prior to coming on, I, I can kind of see how my four core values came from my four main mentors. It was, it was pretty neat to think about. Oh, that's cool. What are the four core values? Yeah. So, I mean, the first one is can't isn't an option. It's just a challenge. And that's the one that my dad, Louie really lives and breathes, right? Is that if you feel like it's the right thing to do, then we'll find a way to do it. Hmm. And so that it really helps in our business. He's on the farm every day and uh, he's one of my project managers. So he gets, uh, he gets assigned some of the tougher projects because he'll find a way to get it done with the crew. You know, another one is uh, we collaborate or win-win mentality. So I feel that the best deals are the ones that after you shake hands, you walk away so excited about the next deal, not that you won or lost. That came from one of my mentors when I was at Myers Norse Penny, one of the partners I worked for. And, you know, especially through succession engagements, or even honestly, we negotiated a few different divorces. The best thing was to get everybody's mindset in. When we walk out of here, it needs to at least be fair, but in a perfect world, you know, win-win. Yeah. The next one is that we, you know, innovate and optimize. So it doesn't matter how small you are or how big you are. Don't get stuck in the way things have always been done. And 5% or 1% always matters, especially if it's to a top line, because it's a multiple on your bottom line. That one, one really got drilled into my head when I was down at Texas A&M by one of my mentors, Dr. Danny Kleinfelter, who sits on my advisory board now too. Then the last one is kind of a growth mentality, we call it. So, you know, I've always said that if you're not growing, you're dying, right? Inflation's 3%. And so there's a pretty easy goal to chase, but you know, especially in the world of business, but even in your personal life, if you're not finding ways to grow, you're just, you're just here. You're just a cog in the wheel. So I looked for actually coaches, business and life coaches around this mentality too. When I was, when I was a little bit younger. So I've been going to strategic coach out in Toronto for a number of years. And, and I use Dan Sullivan as kind of my, let's say mentor on the growth mentality, but yeah. it's something that's been, you know, I think it's been built into me since I was basically born. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Who's the first person you remember thinking about as a leader back in the early days? Yeah, I mean, probably my dad. I don't know that I would have looked at it as a leader at that time because it was just your dad, right? But yeah. that was the first one that came to mind. And then I, I had a couple hockey coaches that taught me some really important lessons early in my life. Things like as simple in the world of hockey plus minus is the number of goals you're on the ice for versus the number that gets scored yeah. against you and, and how that's more important uh, on a line by line basis than who does the scoring. And so really understanding that a leader finds a way to put their arms around everybody and uplift everybody. They're not one to be individually focused and push, push the rest of the team yeah. down. And so some of those lessons were, were pretty important. The more I look back. Yeah. I'm preparing to write the data book for uh, the traction library and the plus minus, I think is the best example of a measurable that gets everybody engaged in the mission of the organization and drives individual accountability for doing their part. Uh, it's a fabulous, fabulous measure. Yeah. Who's the best leader you've ever worked with or for? 
You know, I think that's a tough question. I mean, I bounced around through some different jobs in university and then, you know, around the farm. And I honestly have to say that I can't pick a best. I can, I can pick best characteristics of a number of Perfect. leaders I worked for. Yeah. Right. And, and the one major one that we just discussed is, you know, just my one hockey coach was so focused on as a leader on this team, you need to focus one on plus minus and two on making the team always believe. So, I mean, he was always big on if we get scored on because one of our teammates makes a mistake, you know, if you want to lead this team, you got to come into the bench and say, Hey, we all make mistakes. I'm going to get two goals for you. Can you help me? Right. Instead of coming in and saying, Hey, you just cost us that goal. We might lose this game because of that. Hmm. And so that, that really drove into me as we build teams in, in any job I've had of that. If you can, if you can make the team feel that they can never lose, or at least always have the opportunity to win versus it being a very selfish me, I, you know, you need to suck it up to, to stay up with me type of a mentality. It, it really changes life. Um, then I, I go back to my dad that, you know, that can't isn't a challenge or can't isn't an option. It's just a challenge that no quit attitude. Now I understand there's times when you in business, you just have to cut loose on a bad idea that didn't work, but there's a lot of mountains that need to be climbed that I think a lot of entrepreneurs quit early because it gets inside their head that they can't do it. Right. When in fact, you know, probably all they needed to do was, was ask who can help me get to the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. We're, we're also worried about doing it by ourselves. when I think there's a lot of opportunity, whether it's, you know, a mentor or someone on your team or just a, someone in your network that could give you a little nudge or, or a piece of information that could help conquer that mountain. Yeah, that's great stuff. Have you ever had a leader whose style or approach turned you off or somebody who you want to make sure you don't make the same mistakes they, they made? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can, I can specifically remember a manager one time that, uh, you know, you could still hear the footsteps coming down the hallway because it was a stomp, right, in the, in the <laughs> office building. And, and it was very short deadline, low communication. You know, if something went wrong, it was always the, the lower level teammates' fault, never their fault, right? And when things went right, you know, they had always done everything and the lower levels hadn't done anything for them. And it just really showed me how you can, you know, money is not enough to convince people to stick around to work for someone like that. They need to know that, you know, as you grow, you're going to take them with them, right? I always kind of say that growth for a lot of people in this world is to jump on the right coattails, but really they shouldn't be on the coattails. They should be inside the plane. And so that, that leader really taught me that, you know, you, you can't, you can't leave footprints on people's foreheads and expect to get very far in life. <laughs> well, those things have a way of coming back on you. And I, I, I don't know how you can sleep at night when you've left your footprint on somebody's forehead. I just, I have enough trouble sleeping without, without trying to do that intentionally. So I'm with you hundred percent. Let's talk about your leadership style. If I were to ask a couple of the folks that look to you as a leader to describe the way you lead, what would I hear? Yeah, I think depending on, I got a few different businesses that, that I'm involved in at different levels. So, I mean, I think if you talk to the businesses where, you know, where I chair the board or I'm a, or I'm a, or I'm just a large shareholder, they'd probably say I'm more like a hockey coach, right? Uh, I spend a lot of time trying to explain the the mistakes and the lessons I've learned to hopefully guide them to not have to make the same ones or at least fail fast instead of taking a long time. And, and I think that they'd probably say that I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that we got the right people on the right lines and, and have the right strategy in place to be 
you know, at least have the opportunity for success. It's not going to go right every day. The businesses that I'm involved in, you know, the farm, I'm still pretty, pretty day to day, especially in seeding and harvest. Um, mm-hmm. Those guys would probably say I'm a lot closer to the captain of a hockey team, right? Which you'll find me one day if I have to, I'll be in shoveling a bin and the next day I'll put more hours than anybody in the drill. But, you know, I'm no more important than the guy that runs the lawnmower or runs a drill beside me. It's, uh, you know, I, I lead a fair bit like a hockey team and that the captains and assistant captains are really just those people that can communicate a little better and always keep everybody's mindset that we can, we can climb this mountain, but everybody is as important depending on the situation, right? If the other team has a breakaway, the goalie is the most important player on your team, not your captain or your coach. And, and so that we do a lot of kind of situational analysis of when we need everybody to be a leader. Hmm. Um, it's just my job to make sure that they're ready to lead. Uh, talk to me about that. How do you teach a, a frontline employee, somebody maybe new to the operation, how do you teach them to kind of lean into that opportunity to lead? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stories you hear over life and that you see work. So, you know, I can remember, uh, I, actually, I'm pretty sure it was the traction book reading one that really hit my hit me in the forehead was the secretary realizing that if she answered the phone after two rings, it changed their customer success survey versus if she answered in two rings or less and with a, you know, with a cheery attitude. So I think in all your organizations, the, you know, the closer you can get down to, to ground level and explain to them how that affects, you know, top line, but I'm not even as big on top line. I'm more on how it affects the real value that we're trying to create. Right. Cause some of that might show up three, four five years from now. So I think a thing's as simple as we do a lot of work with John Deere corporately around North America and we'll have, different people from different levels of John Deere out all the time. And, you know, we've had people as high as the, you know, the CEO of Canada or of North America for Deere out. And, and I'll have them walk around with my, with my sprayer operator or go through our, a bunch of our data on a computer with our controller, because those two know more about those two individual pieces of the data set that they're looking for than I do. And so it, part of it is, you know, making them understand why we think the data is important and SOPs are important, but, the other, the other part is, is a leader giving them the opportunity to shine in front of, in front of people that they think are, let's be honest, pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. You you have to take some risk to entrust your people to do that. How do you process through that risk and decide you're going to take a leap? Higher, slow and fire fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, so I mean, definitely I, I probably err a little bit on the side of just trusting my people. And if they, uh, you know, if they make a mistake, we'll deal with it. But uh, a good friend of mine once said, right, as a leader, your your job is to explain to people where the ditches are, keep them on the road. And as long as they're on the road, they should probably just push the gas down as fast as they can handle it. And so when I'm putting them in those positions, I mean, it's my job to explain, you know, here's the areas that you're not allowed to cross into the ditch. And if you do cross into the ditch, I better be the first person to know and I better know right away because yeah. then we'll fix the problem. Mm. Very, very well said. How do you decide somebody's run into the ditch too many times and you got to make a change? I mean, changes are never fun, right? But probably in our case, a lot of the times is it's more of a team decision than just me, right? Mm. Especially on the farm, you know, there'll be 15 to 20 of us working shoulder to shoulder in our key seasons. And so if I see someone that they're running into the ditch is really slowing down the whole team, it, it would be pretty normal that that a few team members would either bring it up to me or my ops manager to say like, Hey, 
we got to do something about this. It's slowing us all down. Yeah. They know that I, I really value speed. Now I also value perfection, but the minute we get it perfected, let's move fast. And so if, if there's, if the mistakes and the ditches are causing issues there. So, I mean, we'll, we'll normally do, you know, one discussion to say, Hey, there's too many ditches and, and here's the ways that we believe you can fix it. And then after that, uh, the process either corrects itself or ends fairly quickly. Right. Yeah. I, I really am intrigued by your thinking about it through the perspective of the team. And that's, you know, especially right now with as difficult as it is to find and keep great people, you know, I see a lot of leaders struggling to call the question when they've got somebody who's holding everybody else back. And this idea of, you know, if eight people are disadvantaged by this person being here, is that person really an asset is a, is a pretty powerful thought process to get them to, to process that. So really good insight. I mean, I think your team needs to understand that that you can actually multiply through subtraction if that person's holding them right. back fast enough. But you also need your team to be on board, right? If if you letting someone go makes them feel that they're going to be overworked, that's probably not the right path to take. There's probably ways to find the new person prior. But if they really feel that, hey, like we're losing 20% each because of this person, then they're all on board. They're happy when it happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Have, have you ever made a mistake with regard to the way you coach or lead people? And if so, what, what was it? I'd say, you know, one of my weaknesses, their main mistakes is that, you know, we tend to grow really fast. I mean, I hear your, your introduction at the start 22,000. And I think that was probably about a year ago. I think we'll put in, we put in 28 this year and close to 30 next year. So our growth wow. pattern, it tends to be pretty quick. Um, not that we really search for it, but we don't miss, you know, opportunities do tend to come to us and, and anything that fits in, we take. And so I probably don't spend enough time maybe communicating exactly where I want to go or how we're going to get there. Right. And part of it is, is because we're more of an opportunistic growth company, I have a hard time just throwing a number on the wall and saying, Hey, we're going there and this is how we're going to get there where I'm more of a, you know, a value add in the long-term value. And we might bolt three or four more companies on to get to where we need to be. So just that communication of, of where we're going, how we're going to get there and exactly how each person fits in has, has probably been my mistake in the past. You know, I'll, I'll have teammates feel undervalued for a period of time before, before they'll bring it up to me to sit down to have that chat. So yeah. I know uh, I need to allocate a bit more time, even just, you know, to have lunch individually with people once or twice a year instead of leaving a lot of it up to the HR crew. Yeah, I think that that understanding why and having a rough idea where we're going helps people prepare for that change. And when you're surprised by change, it's almost always harder to harder to process through it yourself. So it's uh, good insight there too. Uh, I find too, I don't know what you found is that the more good people you have, right? One of the kind of, I don't want to say complaints, but the questions you'll get back is, is there enough room for leadership and do I get more responsibility? And yet on the other side, they're like, man, I really like everybody I work with and they have so many good skills. So I, I find that, you know, I'm pretty anal about having great people, which means that you don't necessarily need a whole bunch of managers, right? They're right. very good at managing their own little project or their crew of three people. So that, you know, I think growth helps that, to be honest. Right. But it's one of those fine lines that we, we find we have to communicate our way through. One of my favorite quotations is change is hard. You go first. And so, you know, it is a sort of a human condition to kind of once when you're hitting on all cylinders, 
you know, which which we all get to from time to time in our businesses, nobody wants it to change. But at the same time, if you're not changing, if you're not growing, you are dying. And we're creating opportunities for people to change themselves and improve themselves too. And so, you know, that tension is always going to be there. And it's it's why our jobs as leaders are is so consistently challenging. Help the listener understand, Christian, you know, the nature of your business and the other businesses you're in. So first of all, describe HGV for me. I, I sounds like I got the number of acres wrong because I haven't uh, I haven't been close enough to you over the last couple of months <laughs> to know about these uh, these changes. So yeah, so I mean, Heber Grain Ventures is a just right around a thirty thousand acre grain and oil seed farm. You know, grows malt barley, canola, hard red spring wheat, peas, rye, oats, kind of whatever works best in our rotation from both a financial standpoint and the land standpoint. And really, kind of the legacy statement of of it is is we want the the land and the financial statements as well as our community and industry to be in a better state generation after generation. And that's our, that's our goal. Um, we also have a consulting company called Maverick egg that my CFO runs for me, but it's kind of a, it does a lot of work for other large farms, but it's, I would call it a data house in the world of agriculture to do benchmarking, et cetera, for large farms, as well as I shouldn't say large for progressive farms, as well as some of the corporate agriculture companies that, you know, really are trying to better understand this level of progressive farmers versus maybe the old school mentality of what farming is. Mm -hmm. And then I'm fairly involved with a private crop insurance company called Global Ag Risk. I chair the board and some, and, and own part of it. And it, it ensures margin in the world of agriculture. It's virtually the only one in the world. And so it's taught me a lot around the, you know, around reinsurance and risk management and, and how having a proper risk management plan really it allows you to go out there and try and hit a home run every year because you're not worried about striking out and how that mentality changes your your entrepreneurial journey. Interesting. Interesting. Anything on the horizon in terms of uh, growth, business opportunities, new businesses you're thinking about getting into? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my best friend and I kind of have a goal that we want to have our own mini, you know, family office or private equity firm. So we've probably invested in five to 10 either startups or, you know, the current entrepreneurs at the end of his journey and the young person working for him can't afford the buyout. So that for us, that's kind of my interesting spot is I, I feel that's what I'll call retirement is having a family office that keeps my mind busy enough that I don't bug every day the person that takes over the farm. <laughs> but we tend to focus on two things. One is, as I said, helping young people buy out the, the current business they're part of and, and help and coach them through it. And two, investing in startups that fall around a bunch of the stuff we're doing in agriculture. So, I mean, we've got money in a lithium startup, you know, just so that we learn more about the world of, of batteries and electric, et cetera, and where it goes. And, you know, another one is a potash startup that can, they're kind of like mini potash mines that have way less capital investment. So, you know, I, I really like to focus on the areas that obviously affect my industry, but also our, our consumers so that I can really just educate myself better. Mm. I find that I pay attention to things better if I have some money in them versus just pretending I'm going to read all the time. Well, yeah, the the way you think about something you're considering investing in rather than just reading about it in the media is a completely different thought process, isn't it? You have to understand what the consumers or customers want, how the company delivers value. All of that is just a fun thinking exercise regardless. Yeah. I love it. And I yeah. mean, especially some of the more, you know, tech type plays where it's not EBIT evaluations, right? It's, it's, 
its churn and, and, you know, monthly cash flows, et cetera, and, and units so that when you flick the light in the, in the positive income, how does it explode in value? And, That's and right. it, it's a different way of doing business than especially those, of, you know, my CPA background shows, but yet it's a phenomenal thing to learn about and just really try to understand. Right. Well, and, and, and you're living your core value of, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying you know, pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone is so, so important. Um, and I also think your definition of retirement must come from Dan Sullivan. My favorite Dan quote is death is coming. Look busy. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember, I still remember to this day when Dan said his definition of retirement was take one week of every month off right, <laughs> to, to do nothing, but the personal life side. And I've pretty much convinced myself of that. Right. And yeah, Kind of my, you know, my definition of, of when you've made it as an entrepreneur, or even maybe that is retirement, is when you completely control your calendar, right? When you decide if you want to be busy every day. And, you know, I'm not there yet, but I've made a huge amount of strides from where I was 10 years ago. And that would be kind of my goal of by the time I want to deem myself retired is I'm not going to quit working. I just yeah. want to have complete veto on what I say yes and no to on a day-to-day -day basis. And and really only do things that I love or in my unique ability. And so that's, that's what we're working towards. Oh, awesome. I want to talk about agriculture a little bit because I think agriculture is a subject that hits the news a lot, but a lot of people don't really understand where it is and where it's going. And so, you know, the first question I have for you is help the listener understand what doing things right by the land really means to you and your organization. Yeah, you bet. So, I mean, it for us, you know, we grid soil sample every four acres of our 30,000 acres every single year that then allows us to know what each, you know, macronutrient and micronutrients at, what our organic matters at, what our pH levels at. And then we, we do variable rate nutrient application from that point. So I can tell every single fall exactly what my crop's taken out of that field and exactly what it needs to grow, you know, an average crop the year after. You know, we have, we got weather stations with four foot soil probes running algorithms off the water capacity of what the yield can be so that, you know, in June or early July, we'll go top dress extra nutrients if needed to hit that high yield. We're not just over applying a whole bunch of nutrients to run off in the water. Like you'll see in some, you know, in some uh, magazine articles. So we, it's really turned into a science of the soil. I mean, my family's farmed for a number of years and we plan on it, it taking place forever. So, I mean, we're going to do what's in the best interest of the soil. Hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. We also need, need to be financially sustainable. So some of the items that come forward, we're going to be a little slow to adopt or quick to adopt because we need the hybrid of being, you know, sustainable for both the soil and the financials. We can't just spend money on every new technology and every new idea and make our soil better if it makes us go bankrupt. So it's really that fine line between the two with the end goal of being, as I said, we want the land and the statements to be in a better state every single generation. If we don't do that, the next generation is going to have a higher chance of failure, which is not what we want. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the stuff that's really difficult to understand if you're not there looking at the soil, understanding what makes for healthy fields and what makes for unhealthy, unsustainable fields. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I so far haven't found a source in the media to, to give, the uninformed person a real solid handle on that what, what would you recommend the people who want to learn more about where agriculture is going what should they look at read study etc 
like you said, it, it's one thing agriculture has done a pretty poor job of is getting the real story across. So, I mean, there's some networks, the global farmer network really does share a lot of good information. I think too, if you kind of just try to find some, some social media groups to follow. So, I mean, they're welcome to follow Giver Grain Ventures and ask mm-hmm. questions and, and I could name it, you know, there's a number of operations in the U S that I like to follow. I mean, black gold potato company and Tom farms out of Indiana. And like I said, there's lots of different operations to follow. And so, and don't be afraid to ask some questions. I mean, we'll answer when we get, when we get a second, but you know, just try to not believe everything that automatically hits Google would be our first question (laughs) or our first, you know, statement. And and secondly, you know, we're, we're working on doing a better job of telling the story of agriculture. And so just bear with us and hopefully we improve. (laughs) That's so great. I have a 14 year old son who starts a lot of sentences with, I saw it on the internet. So uh, you are a hundred percent right. All right, Christian, let's go back to your thinking and philosophy about leadership. Go back to the day you decided the family farm was where you need to relocate and that was your future. What piece of advice would you like to have gotten or given yourself knowing what you know now? Probably to build, you know, it's not really an algorithm, but build your own process on how to trust your gut. You know, and it's hard to probably explain to anyone that isn't an entrepreneur, but every entrepreneur will understand what I'm saying is that, you know, there's times when we don't trust our gut because we just can't get the communication across to our team. And, and then there's times when we do because we've been convinced by somebody else and yet we felt off on it. And it's probably the worst thing we can do. So, I mean, you know, build your process of what you need to do to take an idea that feels right in your gut and get it to the point that it's implementable by your team. You can't just, you know, throw it at them as an idea. You have to sit down. And even though, uh, you know, even though many of us struggle a little with ADHD, we got to get it rolled into a process that the rest of our team can comprehend. So that would be one piece of advice is really just trust your gut. It's not high risk if you really believe in it. That's the number one risk is if you don't believe in it. I think the second thing would be is, you know, one of my mentors, Danny Kleinfelter, his saying is, you know, the difference between a, a 300 hitter and a 250 hitter, right? It's just, they only hit the ball one more time every 20 at bats. And and yet, you know, that's, that's the difference between an all-star, you know, someone that probably wins the, the world series, et cetera, versus just an average player in the major leagues. And, and so if you think of that as an entrepreneur, like in order to be successful, you only need to be better 5% of the time than everybody else. Yeah. One time out of 20 at bats more. And so don't, don't feel that you always have to be right. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to learn from other people. And so make sure that you use that network and spend time building that network that you have, you know, a whole bunch of people smarter than you to, to lean on when you need some, you know, points of advice or direction or, or someone just to poke some holes in your theory so that you can be ready for the, you know, the weaknesses in it when they come. Boy, is that two great pieces of advice, Christian. Thank you for that. Where can the listener go to learn more about you and your operation? Probably I'm, I'm reasonably active on Twitter. It's at Christian Hebert. My first name spelt a little weird, K-R-I-S-T-J-A-N-H-E-B-E-R-T. And then both, you know, personal and the farm have websites. So just HebertGrainVentures.com or ChristianHebert.com and MaverickAg.com is our 
is our consulting company, but we're pretty active on all on all social media, but Twitter be the one that I'm most personally active on. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Christian, it's been an absolute joy getting to know you today. I'm sure our listeners feel exactly the same way. This podcast is all about helping us feel like we're not alone when we're leading and managing people. And you've done a great job of telling your story in a way that helps with that. So couldn't say thank you enough. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And I think it's something that us as an entrepreneur share is we all go through that feeling alone. And so to find a, whether it's a coach or a podcast or a network to, to be your safe haven, to, to lay all your crazy ideas out or things that are bugging you that you don't feel that you can talk to with your normal group of friends or even your family. It's pretty important that we stick together and find those places. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's this episode of the EOS Leader Podcast, hopefully helping you go out and be your best today, tomorrow, and every day as a leader. Thanks again, Christian. If you got value from today's episode, do me a favor. Open your podcasting app and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. If you've already subscribed, please subscribe one of your friends. 